Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 46. I want to catch you up to speed before we dive in here, um, especially if you've not been here for a week or two or you're, you're new here. Um, we've been working our way through the book of Genesis. We've been studying all the different stories that we find throughout this, this uh, book. And for the last several chapters, we've been looking at the life of Joseph. All right. Um, and as we approach the end of the story here, Joseph is second in command in the land of Egypt. A famine has been ravaging this part of the world, but one of the few places where there's an abundance of food is in the storehouses of Egypt. And so people from all over have been coming to Egypt to try to survive because they've needed food. And Joseph, um, being in command there in Egypt, he has the responsibility of passing out the food and giving out food to all these different people that are coming around. And uh, his own brothers, who, if you remember the story, had sold him into slavery as a teenager. They, too, in the land of Canaan, they're out of food. And so they've packed up and they've come to Egypt looking for, for food, not having any idea that it's their brother that's now running things in Egypt. And we, we've looked at that story and we've seen how Joseph ultimately revealed himself to his brothers. Um, he forgave them. He, he even embraced a noble understanding of, of God's greater purpose um, in what was going on there, the desire to save many through his misfortune. And then he sends them to bring his elderly father, Jacob, who also has a name of Israel, same guy, just two different names. He, he sends them to go get Jacob and to come back and live in the best of the land of Egypt and ultimately be reunited with his favorite son, Joseph. All right, that's what's been going on. And here in chapter 46, let's begin reading this morning. Here's what it says. It says, so Israel, that's Jacob, his father, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now, I think this gives us a bit of insight into what was happening in Jacob's life. We studied Jacob, and we saw that he had had radical experiences with God in the past. God had spoken to him and, and taken him on an amazing journey um, throughout his life. But for these last couple of years, it has seemed, as we've seen what he's been trying to wrestle through and sort through with all that's going on with the famine and all of that, it seems like God hasn't spoken to Jacob in a while. That Jacob hasn't heard God's voice. It seems as we've, we were studying this, it seemed that he didn't really know what to do. After he sent his sons and the sons came back and said, hey, this happened. And they wondered about our brother and they ended up keeping Simeon. And Jacob's just like, I don't know what to do. And you'd expect uh, someone like Jacob who had walked with God for all these years to say, I don't know what to do. Let's talk to God about it. And we assume that's what Jacob did. But even in the middle of all that, he had no answers. But here, here we see um, what's now taking place. This happens. God begins to speak to him. And, and one of the things that I told you um, before on that is if you are 
going forward with God in your life, and you don't hear him speak for a while, the, the best thing to do is to, again, to continue to seek God, to make the best decisions you can with the information you've been given, but then you just have to trust him. And you have to assume, well, he's God. He knows what he's doing. He's not giving me a real clear answer at this point, but I'm just going to keep on in the direction, last direction he told me to go. That's the direction I'm going to go. And then we'll see what happens next. And that's what Jacob did. But he was still a little bit hesitant. And that's what this passage is telling us. God is going to show up here to speak to him because he is uncertain that going to Egypt is God's will. Jacob didn't want to miss out on God's plan. That was important to him. He knew that the land of Canaan was part of the promise. God had specifically made this promise that included Canaan to be the place that they were supposed to live, not Egypt. And so when Jacob is like, hey, we're going to starve here if we stay in Canaan. We have this opportunity to go to Egypt, but I know that the promise of God was for Canaan. So what am I supposed to do? God then comforts him and lets him know that even there, even in Egypt, he would go with him and work with the family. And so here as he comes to this place, Beersheba, this is the very same place that God had spoken to Abraham, his grandfather, um, and to Isaac, his father. And God breaks the silence and says to him very clearly, I'm still with you. This is the right direction and right decision. Go. This is where you're going to finish your life, and I will be with you to the end. All right? Now in verse 5, and it says, Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives, in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him. His sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. Now get ready, guys. This is a long list. It's a lot of names. Best thing to do with something like this is look for the names you recognize and the other names, eh, you know. We'll do our best, all right? Here's what it says. You, you should probably recognize the 12 sons of Jacob. Well, maybe, at least a couple of them, right? Here's what it says. It says, Reuben, that's his oldest, Jacob's firstborn. And the sons of Reuben, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohat, and Shaul, the, da- the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. We studied that story. It was weird. <laughs> uh, and the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Padan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Hagi, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, and Areli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, with Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Bariah, Haber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, 
Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Besher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. <laughs> These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The son of Dan, Hushim. The sons of Naphtali, Jazeel, Guni, Jezer, and Shilam. These are the sons of Billah, whom Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Now, this would have been a huge undertaking to move all these people. Um, the family of Jacob had, had grown quite a bit over all of the years. And this list of 70 only includes Jacob's sons, one daughter, grandsons, and one granddaughter. Now, many scholars believe that this particular number is just a symbolic number, okay, when it talks about 70. In fact, in the Bible, throughout the Bible, over and over you see the number seven specifically as a number that's used as a symbol of completion or wholeness or fullness. It's basically saying here, everybody came. All right? and, and that's what's being described. You, you can think of uh, even in Jesus' time where he, when he was asked in Matthew 18 about how often should we forgive someone else. What does he say? Because they say seven times. He's like 70 times seven. They just use that number over and over as just all the time, all right? Continue to do it. Now, we also know that this list doesn't include any of the other daughters, daughters-in-law, great-grandchildren, or servants, or hired help, all right? So the number of people in this immigration could easily have been 200-plus people, easily, with all of their livestock, all of their personal belongings, everything they owned, all together, coming together, the point is this, the entire group of the covenant people of God, everyone came to Egypt. Nobody was left behind. And it says here in verse 28, and it said, he had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Now, Goshen was the farming district of Egypt, all right? Um, it's right on the eastern edge of the Nile River Delta. I've got a picture for you, a map. All right, we've looked at this map before. Um, Canaan was up here, kind of cut off here in the corner. And they walked with all these people, 200 plus people, and all their animals, and all their little kids, and all this stuff, all the way down here, all the way through here. May not look like very far on the map, but it's a long way. Into Goshen. That's this right here. And we've talked before about how this is the Mediterranean Sea. This is the Nile River. It forks in multiple places through here. That's the blue line here. That's the Nile River in Egypt. And, and, and this whole land is called the Nile River Delta. And it's very fertile land because the Nile River runs this way into the Mediterranean Sea. And it fertilizes all this, this, this land here. And so all the crops are grown there all the time really well. And so all of this is the farming, the breadbasket of Egypt, so to speak. And so they come and they settle right here on the very edge of Egypt. 
All of the main cities at this point are back here. They're, they're farther up in what's called Upper Egypt. This is Lower Egypt down here. And so Goshen is where they're at in this, this farmland area. And if they're going to be there, even in a time of drought and famine like they're in, all their flocks and herds would have plenty of water and food. You can turn the light back on, please. But I, the thing I really want you to notice about that is that it was the far edge of Egyptian society, all right? And that's important. It, it, that, that's important as we're going to see here as we, we go on. Look at verse 29. And it says, Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die. Since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. It's been 22 years since Jacob has seen Joseph. For 22 years, he has thought that his favorite son, Joseph, was killed by wild animals. And so now all these events have taken place. And so for the very first time in 22 years, this reunion gets to take place. Now we don't have a record in scripture um, of the other brothers' confession to their father about selling Joseph. I can't imagine that would have been a good conversation. That would have been really devastating. Because basically here you've got these, these um, you know, 10 sons that are men, adults, that come to you as this elderly old man who has been for 22 years mourning the loss of your son, and they basically come and have to say to him, Dad, we lied to you 22 years ago. And we've been lying to you ever since. And we have to tell you this now because we never thought we'd see him again. We never thought you'd see him again. We never thought we'd deal with any of this again. But we met Joseph in Egypt. And not only did we meet Joseph in Egypt, he's alive and he's well. <laughs> And that's an understatement. He's wealthy. He's powerful. He's second in command of the land of Egypt. I'm sorry. We're sorry. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Poor Jacob, is, he's looking around at 10 of you guys. And he's like, all 10 of you were in on this for all this time? And you couldn't tell me that this was what happened? It would have been hard, and it had to be heartbreaking for Jacob. But what we see, even though that, yes, Joseph's wealthy, he's powerful, he didn't care about that. He just wanted to see his son. And that's where we get that line where he says, all right, let me die. I've now seen my son. I, I'm complete. My life is finished. It's, it's, I've done everything that I wanted to do. Now, I also want you to notice when it describes Joseph preparing his chariot and presenting himself to Jacob, this was probably nothing less than this major, like, royal procession. Jacob's a big shot. This is like the presidential motorcade coming into town. And where is he coming? He's coming to Goshen. This is like the farmland somewhere, out in the middle of nowhere. He's coming to a place that the, the upper elites, the leaders of the country, probably rarely, if ever, visited so if you can imagine, the people of Goshen were like, what? 
Joseph is coming? What's going on? This is amazing. And all the people from the area would have been gathering around to try to see the royal chariot. And sure enough, here comes Joseph with all of his attendants and all of his assistants and bodyguards and the whole secret service and the whole thing. And he pulls in. And when it says he's presenting himself and he's prepared, he's in the whole deal. The royal regalia. He's got the outfit and the clothes and he's looking good and he steps out of the royal chariot and everybody's around trying to get a glimpse. And what happens? Joseph gets out. He comes out as old Joseph, all powerful. And he starts crying on his dad's shoulder. <laughs> and what it tells us is it was a good long while. It's not just the kind of thing he sheds a tear and then he gets his decorum back together. No, he's just boohooing on dad's shoulder because it's been so long. And he's missed him so bad. And you see this, 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 this uh, reunion in, in full force. And here's what it says in verse 31. It says, Now Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds. For they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, the family business that Jacob and this household have been running for all these years, these 200 plus people, um, it, it was a big family business. And it was probably much more diversified than simply shepherding livestock. All right? He had become very wealthy, the scripture has told us before, and prosperous over the years. This is part of why Joseph was probably so skilled at administration, even as a young boy. He's been raised in the family business. And so when he showed up at Potiphar's house, Potiphar's like, what? You know how to do this and do that? You know how to read this and balance books? You know how to set up organization and management? Whoa, let's, we're going to use you, right? And, and so it, there was a lot that the, the household of Jacob was very skilled in. But in order to allow the family to stay in the same region and remain separate from Egyptian culture, focusing on this one aspect of the family business would ensure that they could keep a great deal of autonomy. They could stay together as their own little house, doing their own thing, if they could kind of keep away from the, the buzz and speed of what was happening in the cities. Now, it's not that the Egyptians just hated shepherds, as it talks about here, them being an abomination. It's that they viewed shepherding as kind of a low-class occupation, fit only for lower-class people, all right? Um, they wouldn't be welcomed into the high society and elite class that Joseph was a part of. And Joseph wasn't trying to keep his family down. He didn't say, well, you can go and you can just tell them you're shepherds because I don't want you, you know, getting over here into my city and doing my things. That's not what Joseph was doing. Um, he was trying to preserve their integrity as a set-apart people. This had been a part of God's call to Abraham, his grandfather, from the very beginning. 
I want you to be set apart from me. We're going to be together, separate. And being in Goshen was part of that plan to keep that happening. All right? So here we move on. It says in chapter 47, verse 1, So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please, let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. I used to think that Joseph probably brought like his five most presentable brothers to Pharaoh. You know, thinking, all right, I'm going to line you guys up. And he's like, you guys are about to go meet like, the leader of the not free world, all right? Um, you're going to meet Pharaoh. Um, uh, you, no, that's not, all right, you, 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 all right, the five of you, I'm going to bring you guys in to meet him. But now, after reading this and studying a little more, I actually think instead, he may have picked his five scruffiest brothers <laughs> to really sell the whole shepherd angle. Like, he's like, I want to bring you guys in enough where Pharaoh's like, yeah, I was going to give him my back house, but instead, like, let's keep him in Goshen. Right? This is what's going on here. But still, even still, Pharaoh graciously offers them the best land for shepherding. He even offers them jobs on the payroll if they want it. And this was all possible because of what God had done through Joseph's life. As he said before to them, God sent me before you to preserve life. I think this is one of the most profound parallels that we see, um, like we saw last week, in comparing Joseph with Jesus. Through one man, the family of Jacob would be saved. And through one man, the family of God are saved. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Let's move on. Verse 7, it says, Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, And stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Whew. Look what he says next. That's a good lead up to it here. Look what he says next. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. Few and evil. Well, the Egyptians might not have respected shepherding, but they did respect their elders. All right? And Jacob kind of shuffles here, shuffles into the throne room of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's like, whoa, how old is this guy? And, and he asks him, that's the first question he says, how old are you, buddy? <laughs> and look what Jacob responds, 130. Pharaoh's got to be like, whew, 
130. But he's probably even more shocked with the follow-up um, statement that Jacob makes here. He complains that he's a youngster um, because Abraham had lived to be 175. That was his grandfather. And his father, Isaac, had lived to be 180. So for him, at 130, he's like, I'm just a kid. You know, those guys, they really lived a life. But something about this, it bothers me that he would then say, few and evil have been, my, have been the days of my life. Um, it's not that he felt so much that his life had been too short, but he felt that his days were evil. That's sad. If you've lived 130 years and the best you can say is, my life's been kind of evil. <laughs> it's sad. Now we know as we've studied the life of Jacob, he was a cheat and he was a manipulator. But we also know that he was cheated and he was manipulated. And I think that when he learned that even his own sons had ripped him off and lied to him all those years before about Joseph, he probably not only felt betrayed, but he just kind of felt like a failure at this point in his life. He's like, I've lived 130 years, not that many years, but I have 130 years and it's just been evil. It's just been one kind of difficulty after the other. One failure and setback, one struggle and an and issue to deal with. And, and here I am, 130 years in, and it's few and it's evil. Well, one of the hard truths about life is that we can't go backwards. No matter if you see some ad for a time machine or whatever it is, we can't go backwards. We can't go backwards. I know personally... I could write a pretty good list of things that I wish I hadn't said or things I hadn't done or things I could go back and change if I could do it again, that I would do differently, right? Am I the only one? Some of you may have that list too, right? There's probably at least a couple things that most of us are like, all right, yeah, I probably could have done this a little better. I could have done it a little differently. But we can get bogged down and stuck in our lives, relationally, emotionally, spiritually, we can get stuck and held back if we let ourselves get stuck in regret. Too many people have this kind of attitude, sometimes even 130 years in, where all they can see is the failure. All they can see is the regret. All they can see are the mistakes or the missed opportunities. And if that's all you see and that's all you can think about and that's where you live, that's a pretty miserable way to live. That's not what we're called to. That's not what we're supposed to be um, experiencing life in. One of the greatest benefits of being adopted into the family of God is that God takes responsibility for us. Now, we become his children and we still have responsibilities as well, but we're no longer limited to our own power. That's important. That's important to understand. We bring to God our brokenness and our regret and our failures and our disappointments. And what does he do? He gives us, the Bible tells us, he gives us a hope and he gives us a future. He gives us a new way of, th of seeing things, not just dwelling on the parts that we blew and messed up. That's part of what is glorious about how God describes reality. The Bible teaches us 
that these broken bodies and the struggles and failures of the fallen world are temporary. It's temporary, guys. We can't go back, but we can go forward. Say that again. We can't go back, but we can go forward. And God is a God of redemption. God redeems lives. He gives you hope. He gives you a future. He allows you to move forward. The place that we set our hope in is heaven. When all things will be made new and the sins and the pains and the sorrows of this life will be washed away for eternity. And yes, the days of your life may be few and evil, like Jacob said. In fact, to some degree, it's that way for all of us. But your future can be endless and glorious. That is where we're supposed to set our hearts and minds. That's how we're supposed to live life. Philippians 3.20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That's good news, guys. Look at verse 10. It says, chapter 47, verse 10, it says, And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Jacob never thought that his family would end up in Egypt. But now, in this time of great crisis, God provided blessings for them in a foreign land. And as we finish here today, um, I want to expand on that idea a little bit, this being blessed in a foreign land. Right? In three ways. The first thing is there's a blessing in the present. This is the same way that God cares for his people now. There's blessing in the present. Even in a land that's far away from God, we can experience his blessings and his provision. Just like Jacob's family did. Now, even though they were in the land of Goshen and now they've all settled here and, and all that, it's still not perfect. All right? Don't think it was. It wasn't perfect. They weren't on their own land that they owned. They didn't have their own culture and their own freedoms. They were outsiders who had to rely on the government and abide by the Egyptian laws and customs. All right? It wasn't perfect, but still God blessed them there and provided for them there. And I believe that if God could bless them there, he can bless us here. And sometimes we can look around at what's happening around us, whether it's in our own neighborhoods or whether it's in our state or our city or our country or our world, and it's very easy to just say, few and evil is the world around us. You know, it's all bad. Like how it's just a woe is us. If I'd only lived 120 years ago, everything would be great, you know, or whatever it is. Guys, it's not true. It's not true. God can bless us here. Keep your eyes set on him. It won't be perfect. It wasn't perfect for them. It wasn't perfect in 1952, no matter what your grandpa tells you, right? It's not. It wasn't, and it won't be. 
It's not going to be. This isn't where we have our hope. All right? We still will deal with sin and the effects of sin. Death has been defeated, but it still has a lingering effect until God chooses to bring an end to the whole era. But until he does, we can still experience peace and hope and joy and love even in the foreign land that we live in. These are some of the things that develop in our lives as we walk with God, if we'll just walk with him. So there's blessing in the present right now. There's also blessing in the future. If you're a Christian here today, and that's the, that's the caveat, that's the, the exception here. If you're a Christian here today, this world is not your home. Amen. It's not your home. Your citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship, I'm with you in that. My citizenship is in heaven. We're just passing through, like the old song says. We have a hope and a longing for something beyond the 80 or so years. Most of us won't live to 130. (laughs) Um, Hate to break it to you. Maybe a couple of you will. I don't know. I'm not going to. Hope not to. Um, But no matter what it is, we hope for something beyond this. And that's the same hope that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were offered. Hebrews eleven nine to 10 says this, By faith he, and it's referring to Abraham, um, Jacob's grandfather, Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He knew it wasn't perfect when he arrived in Canaan. He knew he was going to be living in a tent for the rest of his life. He knew there was a lot still to happen before all of the promise was fulfilled. But he was looking forward to that thing that God was ultimately promising to do. He believed that promise that God, where God said he would prepare a place for his people. Jesus took that to a whole nother level. And he told us of a promised land that would be eternal. We live in a land that's foreign to God because it's marred with sin, but this world is temporary. In 1 John 2.17, it says, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Well, which is it? If the world's passing away, but the people that abide with God abide forever, how does that work? you got to have a place for these people, right? If there's people that are going to abide forever, but the world's passing away, what's going on? God has a plan to make a new place for us. That's what Jesus, exactly what Jesus told us in John 14, 1 to 3. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. We have blessings in this life, walking with the Lord. But we also have blessings that are far more than we can imagine in the life to come. That's where our hope is. And then finally, not only are we blessed this way in this foreign land, blessings in the present, blessing in the life to come, we also are to be a blessing then to others. 
All right? Not only are we given blessings in the present and the future, but we're given the privilege of being a blessing to others. Sometimes, God blesses people in unexpected ways, like he did with Pharaoh, ruler of Egypt. But usually, God uses his own people to bless others. He uses Christians to be a blessing to others in this world. He has especially, specifically entrusted us with the good news of the gospel. Guys, so many of your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends and that person that's driving next to you down the road and the person you see at the grocery store and the person that's your classmate, so many of these people do not have hope in their lives. They do not have peace. They do not have joy. They're trying to just get through trying to figure out how to make sense of all this. For some of them, they come to a place of just hopelessness. They're just like, well, this is what this is in this life. I'm just gonna have to deal with it. And I'm gonna try to make myself feel as good as I can for as long as I can while I'm here. And then when I die, I just, that's the end of it. But guys, as Christians, God has shown us that there's more. There's more in this life and there's more in the life to come. But what he's also done is he's called us to be the people that share that with all those other people. We don't want to just live life in our own happiness. Oh, it's good for me. Sorry, life sucks for you. Moving on. That's not what it's supposed to be. We are called to be a blessing to others, to bring the good news of the gospel to the world around us, to share it with them. And guys, I want to encourage you to take advantage of this privilege. And watch God bless others through you. I will also tell you another little secret about that. When we bless others, we also receive a blessing in the process. Because it's such a beautiful thing to see somebody get free from their addictions. To get free from sin. To be healed in all their brokenness and hurt. To watch their lives be transformed. To be able to be a part of that, that's an incredible privilege that we're called to as Christians. So remember today, as we, as we finish here, remember that there are blessings in a foreign land for every one of us. Sometimes we have to look a little harder than other times to see them, but they're out there. They're out there for you. They're out there for me. And let's continue to seek the Lord, pursue him, and watch what he would do with us. Let's pray together this morning. God, I do thank you for your word here today. And there's so many things that we have learned through this study in Genesis. So many things, God. And, and I just pray, Lord, that many of these things would be so deep in who we are as people that, uh, that Lord, we wouldn't forget these things, but that we would, um, they would become part of us. They would rewrite our DNA. And part of that, Lord, that we learn here today is that you are a God of blessing. You're a God of provision. You're a God who's looking out for us, even in the land that we live in. And Lord, I pray that you would put in us hearts of gratitude, hearts of thanksgiving, hearts that see your hand at work. Lord, we pray that you would guide us and direct us. Lord, we we do want your blessing But we also, we don't just want the gift, we want the giver. (laughs) 
We want to be in a relationship with you, seeing you at work, experiencing your hand in our lives. Just like we saw that for for Jacob and his entire household. Lord, you are blessing them. You are leading them. You are guiding them. And God, we need the same thing. We ask for that same thing. And this morning, God, I pray that you would use this church, these people, to be a blessing to others. Over these next several weeks, as as we move into the the summertime and as we, we think about the gospel and we look at the life of Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would be teaching us, each one of us, how to to be your hands and your feet into our community around us. And even now, Lord, as we see these little seeds being planted in the scriptures we've been studying, Lord, I pray that those things would begin to take root in our hearts, in our lives. Our church, South Point, we want to be fruitful for you, Lord. We don't want to just be a a church of people that are, are happy and feasting on your blessings. We want to be people that are, are fruitful and going out and, and reaching the lost and bringing the good news of the gospel to others. And so, Lord, we pray that you would show us as a church how to do that. You would show us as individuals how to do that. That you would teach us and, and bring us to a place that we can continue to do that. We love you, God. We're thankful for your love for us. Jesus, we thank you again today for your sacrifice for us and the way that you would bring salvation to each and every one of us. And we pray that we would go in that this week, that we would be encouraged in that this week, that we would look for the blessings that happen in this foreign land that we live. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.